Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. People sometimes ask about the big picture of our work. Why do we present these programs? The answer is we're trying to cultivate a more cohesive sense of community. And our vision of community is based on personal ideals and values, such as compassion, generosity, equality, and civility. We aim to serve the large and growing audience of people who seek a positive alternative to media negativity and exploitation. And we strive to shed light on solutions, not just problems. If you resonate with this vision, you can support us at humanmedia.org and click How You Can Help at the top of our homepage. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. They realized that a democracy required a totally new kind of approach to the society and to education. Uh, the people would have to rule, and therefore they had to be educated. How America's founders took pains to promote a free press and good schools. You're listening to a Humankind Special, an informed republic. I'm David Freudberg. Right from the start of their high-risk 18th-century experiment in democracy, the founders of America recognized an essential truth. For their system of self-government to survive, and many doubted whether it would, we the people need to stay informed. Said James Madison became known as father of the Constitution, a popular government without popular information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy, or perhaps both. Journalism historian Robert McChesney. If people don't know what's going on, they can't really participate at all. And governance will become increasingly run by private special interests, by corporate interests, by those who have the money and wherewithal to know what's going on, to buy politicians, to become the politicians themselves in many cases, as increasingly we're seeing in politics where just billionaires and multimillionaires just run for office and uh, on their own. Uh, and the it will lead to increasing cynicism, inequality, corruption, all the things that are cancerous to self-government. So the American revolutionaries saw that independent journalism would be needed to monitor the functioning of government and the forces that influence it. This isn't some sort of crazy academic theory. This is directly out of Jefferson and Madison. They understood that from the beginning. And that's why both of them said having a viable, credible press system is simply indispensable. It's the first order of business for a free society. I'm in Washington on a sunny afternoon outside the museum, a magnificent gallery and interactive exhibit about America's centuries-old tradition of journalism. The facade of this six-floor building displays a large marble tablet. Engraved in it is the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government. In one hall of the museum, early newspapers are exhibited, one from England the size of a pamphlet dating back to the 1400s. 
Olivia Blanchard stood gazing into the glass display case. I think it's amazing that so long ago, people were writing news and looking for the truth. It's also amazing that they were able to preserve these old papers, that they didn't just crumble over time. It's the coolest thing to be able to see what people saw back then. It's amazing how detailed the illustrations were. How important do you think it is for our country to have the ability to express ourselves and for journalism to be able to operate freely? I think it's so important because without the freedom to know the truth, to tell people what's going on, we don't really know what's happening and to know what to not know what's happening, bad things can happen again and that's never good. By the way, are you a reader of uh, newspapers or yeah, websites? I, I do. I read the newspaper in the morning before I go to school. You do? What grade are you in? Sixth. Is that unusual for a sixth grader? I don't know. I just, I look at the front page, I glance. If something looks interesting, then I'll read more about it. And do you also look at the news online? Uh, not so much online. I, because my family gets a bunch of newspapers, so it's just easier to look when they're right there. But online it's helpful if I'm doing a report in school. Uh, there's many other parts of the world that don't have a free press or one that are obviously controlled by the government and they are much different, much closed societies that don't have anywhere near the freedom of information that we have to make important decisions. Now that said, do you think the average American is getting adequate information to perform our duties as citizens? I think that never before have we had so many different uh, news outlets and channels to choose from, and I think it's up to everybody to not focus in on one single voice, but to do a medley of all of the points of view, uh, because no one of them is correct. Every media has its own specific bias. I think that some um, newspapers, um, and I won't call names, I think they tend to write from a certain angle. And during election time, um, to me, for me, it's apparent that some papers um, are supporting certain candidates. So they tend to write in favor of one candidate and against another. They had to have an educated citizenry or the whole venture, and they saw it as an adventure, as a challenge, would fail. The experiment would fail. Brown University historian Gordon Wood is author of Empire of Liberty and winner of the Pulitzer Prize. He's an expert on the early American Republic. Nothing on this scale, Democratic government or Republican government, had ever been tried since the fall of Rome. So they know they're doing something very new very uh, tricky, very problematic. Can we make it succeed? That's what, of course, runs right through American history. That's what Lincoln is talking about 70 years later. We have the last best hope. Can we make it? Can democracy make it? That's, a, that's an issue that they think about, and they have confidence, but they need an educated citizenry. In the 1770s, the decade of ferment that gave birth to the United States, American colonists became agitated by what they saw as unfair tax policies and trade restrictions, as well as harassment by the British crown. As the revolutionaries' movement gained momentum, activists in the 13 East Coast colonies strengthened their lines of communication. 
up and down the seaboard, there was an effort through newspapers and pamphlets to engage the citizenry, to inform them about their political rights, and they believed that if the population was well informed about their political rights, then uh, British measures at tyranny would be stymied. Richard Brown, University of Connecticut historian and author of The Strength of a People. Their ideology that came out of opposition politics in Britain told them that if a people was ignorant, sleepy, lazy, uh, they were easily manipulated by demagogues and tyrants. But cultivation of an informed citizenry was viewed by the revolutionaries as more than a political necessity. When America's founders sounded the Liberty Bell at Philadelphia to let freedom ring, they were proclaiming a new view of human rights, even if that view was constrained by 18th century mores. For Virginia's Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence, it was the starting point for an entirely different kind of society. Well, the vision would be that when human beings are educated, that they live their lives by reason. He really did, he was a person who believed that reason should be, as he said, in its seat, and progress would unfold from there. Historian and law professor Annette Gordon-Reed, winner of the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award for her book The Hemingses of Monticello, is a Jefferson scholar. So this idea of the diffusion of knowledge throughout the citizenry was a way of ensuring that the values of the Enlightenment, of which he would have thought of himself as an Enlightenment progressive type, would spread across the country and would spread across the land. And he, he almost saw it as, as an inevitable thing, that if peop, educated people would make the right choices. Now, that's, uh, that was a part of his own sort of personal optimism. And, of course, there were people who felt differently, who had a, a more, they would say, realistic view of human nature, saying that that's not going to be enough, that, in fact, you have to have, you have to have an elite or elites in order to make decisions, that they will be the people who will always uh, rule. That was much more of a Hamiltonian a vision, that there would always be an elite who would control. I think Jefferson and uh, others took a more capacious view of what democracy should be, that in fact, the more people who were involved, the more people who were, in, who were educated, the more people who were knowledgeable, that it would fuel the general sense of progress in the world and you wouldn't have to rely upon elites to do that. But I think all of them understood there had to be citizen involvement. With no monarchy, uh, the people had to be sovereign. Listening to an informed republic, a special from humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, please visit our website, humanmedia.org. Today's high-speed printing technology would probably have blown the mind even of the inventive Benjamin Franklin, the 
operated a hand-cranked press at his print shop in Philadelphia, where Poor Richard's Almanac was published starting in 1732. Early America relied on the printed word as the foremost medium of information, and a high degree of literacy pervaded the United States from its inception. Historian Gordon Wood. Close to 90% in New England males, women uh, less, but maybe 70%. But this is, there's probably no place in the world, with the possible exception from what studies have been made, of parts of Scandinavia where you had such high literacy. And of course, by the early decades of the 19th century, we had become the greatest newspaper reading public in the world. I mean, more papers read here than not per capita, but just in total numbers of newspapers than anywhere else in the world. Early American readers learned legal, political, and commercial information from their newspapers, frequently published by small-town printers. And once the final state, Rhode Island, ratified the Constitution, America's founders realized that newspapers, often transported by horseback riders, would play a vital role in preservation of the emerging country. Richard Brown. They understand that they have a vast territory in 1790, that uh, in order to create a nation, uh, there must be uh, a community of citizenship, a community of information. And if there is to be such a community of information, there must be uh, national networks that will enable this community of information uh, to be created and to continue to operate. There was a postal system, of course, operating under the British, uh, and indeed Benjamin Franklin was uh, a postmaster for the American colonies. And it was always seen from the beginning that having a post office was a key function of a national government. For the purpose of diffusing knowledge, as well as extending the living principles of government to every part of the United States. Benjamin Rush, physician, Philadelphia Quaker, and signer of the Declaration of Independence. Every state, city, county, village, and township in the Union should be tied together by means of the post office. This is the true non-electric wire of government. It should be a constant injunction to the postmasters to convey newspapers free of all charge for postage. They encourage newspaper editors to exchange newspapers freely with each other, and, and newspapermen could send their newspaper to other newspapers free. So there's this grand, you might call it an internet of newspapers, uh, moving information freely through the postal system. And the idea was that the the newspapers should be a mechanism whereby people should be informed about public affairs, local affairs, state affairs, national affairs, international affairs. Uh, they wanted people to not be parochial, located only in their own little community, but to raise their consciousness to a broader appreciation of public affairs. Were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. Thomas Jefferson. When you look at the colonial period and how few, relatively few newspapers, relatively few magazines existed, and then look at what happened after 1776, an extraordinary transformation. Historian Gordon Wood. Magazines exploded, newspapers exploded, uh, and then lecture series, the whole 
paraphernalia of civil society emerges. Libraries, public libraries in, in, uh, in various towns, in, particularly in New England. Now, uh, the North remains, uh, really advances rather rapidly. The South remains um, more static, and, and by uh, 1820, um, the South has many fewer newspapers, fewer libraries, fewer of all of these instruments in the South. The South remains much more rural, much more stuck in the 18th century. And so the differences in the two sections begin to emerge, I think, rather quickly. The founders of the United States were keenly aware that democracy always comes with risks. For the system to work, for voters to make wise choices, the citizenry must make the effort to be knowledgeable. Said American revolutionary Thomas Paine, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must undergo the fatigue of supporting it. People can be fooled if you don't know how the government works, if you don't know your own powers as a citizen, what you have a right to demand, what you have a right to, um, to expect from your leaders. Historian and New York Law School professor Annette Gordon-Reed. You have to know how it works. And it's not a terribly complicated process. You know, strangely enough, it's not uh, a wildly, you know, convoluted system we have here. But I think the real thing is that you can't make the government work for you. You can't, be, you can't play your role in the government if you don't understand how these things work. And it's really frightening to think that people don't understand you know, the rights, the Bill of Rights, uh, don't understand the Constitution, don't understand the procedures uh, that make the government, make the government run. And it's, it's all about, that's how you preserve freedom. You have to be knowledgeable in order to do that. If you think of, uh, of authoritarian governments, they hold the society together from the top down. But a republic or a democracy uh, has to be held together from the bottom up. And so you need people who are educated, who are willing to support um, the society, are willing to give up their selfish interests for the sake of the public good. And these people need to be educated. Jefferson's commitment to education was really at the core of his life. Charles Haynes, senior scholar at the First Amendment Center in Washington, has studied the American revolutionaries. They were part of this, uh, this influence of the Enlightenment that said, you know, learning and education really can lead to progress, lead to truth. And they had a deep commitment to that. Many of America's founders were interested in great works of philosophy and history and emphasized the teaching of the classics as part of a well-rounded education for citizens. Greek and Latin, for example, would be at the core of learning. And, of course, that really goes back to being able to read the Bible in, in those early languages. Uh, but then it, it also speaks to their interest in the great classics and reading Plato and Cicero and so forth. They believed those writers, Aristotle, were necessary to really understand virtue and to understand what kinds of uh, human beings we should be. Uh, and so classical education. George Washington, of course, uh, helped to found a school in Alexandria, Virginia, the Alexandria Academy. And he and it encouraged a classical education. And he was very intent that this school 
be open to everyone and there be free tuition for those who couldn't afford it. Orphans of people who died in the Revolutionary War should be, they should, it should be open to them. It should be open to, to um, African Americans. It should be open to women. Um, he was uh, way ahead of his time in terms of saying, look, we need to found schools that, that will educate all levels of society, all people. Uh, that will prepare them for citizenship in this, in this republic. I think uh, every single revolutionary thought about this issue of education, and many of them sat down and wrote up plans for a essentially a three-tiered system that's not all that different from what we have today. Uh, Jefferson's most famous, where he talked about uh, both boys and girls would go to what we call elementary, uh, elementary schools, and then uh, he said, we'll rake the rubbish, that's the term he used, uh, and pull out of this uh, elementary school those bright boys only who would go on to grammar school, which would be essentially uh, high school, but teaching Latin in preparation for university. And then the best and all of this was to be publicly supported, that is, with tax money. And then the best of the uh, grammar school graduates would be sent on to the university, uh, which would also be publicly supported uh, for the elite leadership that would result. And this, and, and this was Jefferson's bill for the more general diffusion of knowledge right, in, exactly. in Virginia, where he lived right, at Monticello. Right, right. And, and, of course, others, Benjamin Rush, others drew, drew up. In fact, I think per capita were probably more publications on education in this period than at any time in our history. I mean, it's a real spate of, of publications. Everybody's talking about education. Benjamin Franklin, who founded the University of Pennsylvania and the Library Company of Philadelphia, wrote that education of youth is the surest foundation of happiness. Charles Haynes. Uh, he famously said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. But less quoted is the second part of that same sentence where he, where he said, as nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. Meaning tyrants. That's right. And, uh, and he believed that, uh, that unless we provided education so that people would, would learn civic virtue and would practice civic virtue, uh, they would be subject to um, authoritarian and tyrannical impulses. For many of America's founders, moral development and the practice of courtesy were almost a preoccupation. As a schoolboy, George Washington would write out in elegant script the rules of civility. The revolutionaries envisioned a society based on moral principles. Joel Spring is an historian of education at the City University of New York. You're sitting there after the revolution. You're scratching your head, trying to figure out how things are going to work. You're worried about the mobs out there. You've just, you know, you've just had a revolutionary war where you've had these people come out of the forest to shoot their guns at the British, etc. How are you going to control them? Well, you start preaching civility and morality and we'll all get along. And, and you try to paint that picture and you try to educate people that way. Personal and social virtues were an explicit topic taught in early American schools. In the minds of most uh, educators, and let's say in the 19, early 19th century, these were Protestant virtues. And in fact, when Horace Mann organized the common school in the 1830s, he was concerned about uh, religious conflict over the common school. So what Horace Mann advocated was that what we would do is we would take 
the basic virtues taught in the King James Version of the Bible. And without any religious trappings, those would be the virtues taught in the school. And those will be the virtues uh, necessary to sustain the republic. And could you specify some of those virtues? Responsibility, reciprocation. If you do something good for me, I should try and do something good for you. Charity, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The idea that uh, the rich were blessed by God and the poor had a chance to be rich and therefore virtuous. Uh, hard work, diligence, idle hands are the devil's tool. So these were the kind of virtues that you had a responsibility to your fellow human beings. Of course, we had slavery, and we won't go into that, and Native Americans, which means that many white people weren't responsible at all. But anyway, to other free people, you were responsible and, at, and within the golden rule, and that at the same time, you worked hard to improve the community itself. And we have to remember that uh, until the Bible and prayer decisions of the 1960s, that most public schools in this country opened with a school prayer and a reading from the Bible. When I went to school in Florida, that's how school began. And those were virtues that were to be instilled. United States, founded on Jefferson's declaration that all men are created equal, has continuously struggled to interpret that principle from generation to generation. At the country's beginning, only property-owning white males were allowed to vote. Full citizen participation has advanced only by fits and starts since the Revolution. Historian Annette Gordon-Reed. Hamilton believed that the reason for the condition of African Americans during that time period is because they were not educated and that they had not been given opportunities. There wasn't a, what you would call an abolitionist movement in the, in, in the way we think of it towards the antebellum period. But you're saying that Alexander Hamilton understood that the black population was disadvantaged because of education? Yes. I mean, that's one of the things that he said, that the, the problem is a lack of experience, lack of education, that it's not natural. Now, he was countering at uh, this point some of the things that Jefferson had said in notes in the state of Virginia about black um, inferiority. He was saying that he ventured it as a suspicion that blacks were uh, intellectually inferior um, to to whites. Uh, Hamilton, sort of in then private correspondence at some point, says, well, you know, it really is about the lack of opportunities that people have. How do you say that people are inferior if you've never given them a shot at being educated? I think the story of American history is the ongoing struggle to live up to the principles and ideals in our Constitution, in our founding documents. Charles Haynes of the First Amendment Center in Washington. They didn't live up to them. We still have not lived up to them. So the struggle throughout history is to call the American people to, to go back to those ideals and say, now what can we do to advance freedom and justice for all? How can we come closer to those ideals? So no, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and others, they weren't perfect and they didn't live up to their own ideals true of our politicians today. Well, it's Imperfect. True, right. But you know, I always remember what David Walker, the great abolitionist 
African-American abolitionist uh, said of Jefferson. He said, you know, and this is while Jefferson was still alive, the end of his life, he said, you know, Thomas Jefferson, he's the greatest philosopher alive. He says, but I don't know why he says what he says about black people. But he said, but here's the issue. How can we out Jefferson Jefferson on the racial question? And so I think that's always the question for every generation. How can we out Madison Madison? and out Jefferson Jefferson. So the ideals, the Jeffersonian ideals, the Madisonian ideals, which, which are so deeply important to who we are as a people, uh, it's always a, a struggle to live up to what we say we believe. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Laura Carlo, Guy Byrne, and Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, part one of An Informed Republic, is Humankind program number 151. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.